What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 5 of Tales of the Five Towns. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Clifton. Tales of the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett. Chapter 5. A Feud. When Clive Timmis paused at the side door of Ezra Brunt's great shop in Machin Street, and the door was opened to him by Ezra Brunt's daughter before he had had time to pull the bell, not only all Machin Street knew it within the hour, but also most persons of consequence left in Hanbridge on a Thursday afternoon, Thursday being early closing day. For Hanbridge, though it counts 60,000 inhabitants and is the chief of the five towns, that vast huddled congress of boroughs devoted to the manufacture of earthenware, is a place where the art of attending to other people's business still flourishes in rustic perfection. Ezra Brunt's drapery establishment was the foremost retail house in any branch of trade of the five towns. It had no rival nearer than Manchester, thirty-six miles off, and even Manchester could exhibit nothing conspicuously superior to it. The most acutely critical shoppers of the five towns, women who were in the habit of going to London every year for their January sales, spoke of Brunt's as a right-down good shop. And the husbands of these ladies, manufacturers who employed from two hundred to a thousand men, regarded Ezra Brunt as a commercial magnet of equal importance with themselves. Brunt, who had served his apprenticeship at Birmingham, started business in Machin Street in 1862 when Hanbridge was half its present size, and all the best shops of the district were in Oldcastle, an ancient burg contiguous with, but holding itself proudly aloof from, the industrial five towns. He paid eighty pounds a year rent, and lived over the shop, and in the summer quarter his gas bill was always under a sovereign. For ten years success tarried, but in 1872 his daughter Eva was born, and his wife died, and, from that moment the sun of his prosperity climbed higher and higher into heaven. He had been profoundly attached to his wife, and, having lost her, he abandoned himself to the mercantile struggle with that morose and terrible ferocity which was the root of his character. 
of rude, gaunt aspect, gruffly taciturn by nature and variable in temper, he yet had the precious instinct for soothing customers. To this day he can surpass his own shop-walkers in the admirable and tender solicitude with which, forsaking dialect, he drops into a lady's ear his famous stereotyped phrase, "'Are you receiving proper attention, madam?' From the first he eschewed the facile trickeries and ostentations which allure the populace. He sought a high-class trade, and by waiting he found it. He would never advertise on hoardings. For many years he had no signboard over his shop-front. And whereas the name of Bostocks, the huge, cheap drapers lower down Machin Street, on the opposite side, attacks you at every railway station and in every tram-car, the name of E. Brunt is to be seen only in a modest, regular advertisement on the front page of the Staffordshire Signal. Repose, reticence, respectability. It was these attributes which he decided his shop should possess, and by means of which he succeeded. To enter Brunt's with its silently swinging doors, its broad, easy staircases, its long floors covered with warm red linoleum, its partitioned walls, its smooth mahogany counters, its unobtrusive mirrors, its rows of youths and virgins in black, and its pervading atmosphere of quietude and discretion, was like entering a temple before the act of oblation had commenced. You were conscious of some supreme administrative influence everywhere imposing itself. That influence was Ezra Brunt. And yet the man differed utterly from the thing he had created. His was one of those dark and passionate souls which smoulder in this harsh Midland district as slag-heaps smoulder on the pit-banks, revealing their strange fires only in the darkness. In 1899, Brunt's establishment occupied four shops, numbers 52, 56, 58 and 60 in Machin Street. He had bought the freeholds at a price which timid people regarded as exorbitant. But the solicitors of Hanbridge secretly applauded his enterprise and shrewdness in anticipating the enormous rise in ground values, which has now been in rapid steady progress there for more than a decade. He had thrown the interiors together and rebuilt the frontages in handsome freestone. He had also purchased several shops opposite, and rumour said that it was his intention to offer these latter to the town council at a low figure if the council would cut a new street leading from his premises to the market square. Such a scheme would have met with general approval. But there was one serious hiatus in the plans of Ezra Brunt, to wit, Number 54, Machin Street. Number 54, separating 52 and 56, was a chemist's shop, shabby but sedate as to appearance, owned and occupied by George Christopher Timmis, a mild and venerable citizen and a local preacher in the Wesleyan Methodist connection. For nearly thirty years Brunt had coveted Mr. Timmis' shop, more than twenty years have elapsed since he first opened negotiations for it. Mr. Timmis was by no means eager to sell. Indeed, his attitude was distinctly a repellent one. But a bargain would undoubtedly have been concluded had not a report reached the ears of Mr. Timmis to the effect that Ezra Brunt had remarked at the Turk's head that the old leech was only sticking out for every brass farthing he could get. The report was untrue, but Mr. Timmis believed it, 
and from that moment Ezra Brunt's chances of obtaining the chemist's shop vanished completely. His lawyer expended diplomacy in vain, raising the offer week by week till the incredible sum of three thousand pounds was reached. Then Ezra Brunt himself saw Mr. Timmis, and without a word of prelude said, "'Will you take three thousand guineas for this bit of property?' "'Not thirty thousand guineas,' said Mr. Timmis quietly. The stern pride of the benevolent old local preacher had been aroused. "'Then be damned to you,' said Ezra Brunt, who had never been known to swear before. Thenceforth a feud existed, not less bitter because it was a feud in which nothing was said and nothing done, a silent and implacable mutual resistance. The sole outward sign of it was the dirty and stumpy brown-brick shop-front of Mr. Timmis, squeezed in between those massive, luxurious façades of stone which Ezra Brunt soon afterwards erected. The pharmaceutical business of Mr. Timmis was not a very large one, and, fiscally, Ezra Brunt could have swallowed him at a meal and suffered no inconvenience. But, in that the aged chemist had lived on just half his small income for some fifty years past, his position was impregnable. Hanbridge smiled cynically at this impasse, produced by an idle word, and, recognising the equality of the antagonists, leaned neither to one side nor to the other. At intervals, however, the legend of the feud was embroidered with new and effective detail in the mouth of some inventive gossip, and by degrees it took high place among those piquant social histories which illustrate the real life of a town, and which parents recount to their children with such zest in moods of reminiscence. When Christopher Timmis buried his wife, Ezra Brunt, as a near neighbour, was asked to the funeral. The cortege will move at one thirty, ran the printed invitation, and at one fifteen Brunt's carriage was decorously in place behind the hearse and the two mourning coaches. The demeanour of the chemist and the draper towards each other was a sublime answer to the demands of the occasion. Some people even said that the breach had been healed, but these were not of the discerning. The most active person at the funeral was the chemist's only nephew, Clive Timmis, partner in a small but prosperous firm of Majolica manufacturers at Bursley. Clive, who was seldom seen in Hanbridge, made a favourable impression on everyone by his pleasing, unaffected manner and his air of discretion and success. He was a bachelor of thirty-two and lived in lodgings at Bursley. On the return of the funeral party from the cemetery, Clive Timmis found Brunt's daughter Eva in his uncle's house. Uninvited, she had left her place in the private room at her father's shop, in order to assist Timmis's servant Sarah in the preparation of that solid and solemn repast which must inevitably follow every proper interment in the five towns. Without false modesty, she introduced herself to one or two of the men who had surprised her at her work and then quietly departed just as they were sitting down to table, and Sarah had brought in the hot tea-cakes. Clive Timmis saw her only for a moment, but from that moment she was his one thought. During the evening, which he spent alone with his uncle, he behaved in every particular as a nephew should. Yet he was acting a part. His real self roved after Ezra Brunt's daughter, wherever she might be. 
Clive had never fallen in love, though several times in his life he had tried hard to do so. He had long wished to marry, wished ardently. He had even got into the way of regarding every woman he met, and he met many, in the light of a possible partner. Can it be she, he had asked himself a thousand times, and then answered half-sadly, No. Not one woman had touched his imagination, coincided with his dream. It is strange that, after seeing Eva Brunt, he forgot thus to interrogate himself. For a fortnight, while he went his ways as usual, her image occupied his heart, throwing that once orderly chamber into the wildest confusion. And he let it remain, dimly aware of some delicious danger. He inspected the image every night before he slept, and every morning when he awoke, and made no effort to define its distracting charm. He knew only that Eva Brunt was absolutely, and in every detail, unlike all other women. On the second Sunday he murmured during the sermon, But I only saw her for a minute. A few days afterwards he took the tram to Hanbridge. Uncle, he said, how should you like me to come and live here with you? I've been thinking about things a bit, and I thought perhaps you'd like it. I expect you must feel rather lonely now. The neat, fragrant shop was empty, and the two men stood behind the big, glass-fronted case of Burroughs and Wellcome's preparations. Clive's venerable uncle happened to be looking into a drawer marked Gentian Rad Pulve. He closed the drawer with slow hesitation, and then, stroking his long white beard, replied in that deliberate voice which seemed always to tremble with religious fervour, The hand of the Lord is in this thing, Clive. I have wished that you might come to live here with me, but I was afraid it would be too far from the works. Pooh! That's nothing, said Clive. As he lingered at the shop door for the Bursley car to pass the end of Machin Street, Eva Brunt went by. He raised his hat with diffidence, and she smiled. It was a marvellous chance. His heart leapt into a throb which was half agony and half delight. I am in love, he said gravely. He had just discovered the fact, and the discovery filled him with exquisite apprehension. If he had waited till the age of thirty-two for that springtime of the soul which we call love, Clive had not waited for nothing. Eva was a woman to enravish the heart of a man whose imagination could pierce the agitating secrets immured in that calm and silent bosom. Slender and scarcely tall, she belonged to the order of spare, slight maid women who hide within their slim frames an endowment of profound passion far exceeding that of their more voluptuously formed sisters, who never coarsen into stoutness, and who at forty are as disturbing as at twenty. At this date Eva was twenty-six. She had a rather small, white face, which was a mask to the casual observer, and the very mirror of her feelings to anyone with eyes to read its signs. "'I tell you what you are like,' Clive said to her once. "'You are like a fine racehorse, always on the quiver.' Yet many people considered her cold and impassive. Her walk and bearing showed a sensitive independence, and when she spoke it was usually in tones of command. The girls in the shop, where she was a power second only to Ezra Brunt, were a little afraid of her. 
chiefly because she poured terrible scorn on their small affectations, jealousies, and vendettas. But they liked her because, in their own phrase, there was no nonsense about this redoubtable woman. She hated shams and make-believes with a bitter and ruthless hatred. She was the heiress to at least five thousand a year, and knew it well, but she never encouraged the father to complicate their simple mode of life with the pomps of wealth. They lived in a house with a large garden at Pyreford, which is on the summit of the steep ridge between the five towns and Oldcastle, and they kept two servants and a coachman who was also gardener. Eva paid the servants good wages, and took care to get good value, therefore. "'It's not often I have any bother with my servants,' she would say, "'for they know that if there is any trouble I would just as soon clear them out "'and put on an apron and do the work myself.' "'She was an accomplished house-mistress, and could bake her own bread. "'In towns not one woman in a thousand can bake. "'With the coachman she had little to do, "'for she could not rid herself of a sentimental objection to the carriage. "'It savoured of airs.' When she used it, she used it as she might use a tramcar. It was her custom, every day except Saturday, to walk to the shop about eleven o'clock, after her house had been set in order. She had been thoroughly trained in the business, and had spent a year at a first-rate shop in High Street, Kensington. Millinery was her speciality, and she still watched over that department with a particular attention but for some time past she had risen beyond the limitations of departments, and assisted her father in the general management of the vast concern. In commercial aptitude she resembled the typical Frenchwoman. Although he was her father, Ezra Brunt had the wit to recognise her talents, and he always listened to her suggestions, which, however, sometimes startled him. One of them was that he should import into the five towns a modiste from Paris, offering a salary of two hundred a year. The old provincial stood aghast. He had the idea that all Parisian women were stage dancers, and to pay four pounds a week to a female. Nevertheless, Mademoiselle Berthaud, styled in the shop Madame, now presides over Ezra Brunt's dressmakers, draws her four pounds a week, of which she saves two, and by mere nationality has given a unique distinction and success to her branch of the business. Eva occupied a small room opening off the principal showroom, and during hours of work she issued thence but seldom. Only customers of the highest importance might speak with her. She was a power felt rather than seen. Employees who knocked at her door always did so with a certain awe of what awaited them on the other side and a consciousness that the moment was unsuitable for levity. "'If you please, Miss Eva.' Here she gave audience to the buyers and window-dressers, listened to complaints and excuses, and occasionally had a secret orgy of afternoon tea with one or two of her friends. None but these few girls, mostly younger than herself and remarkable only in that their dislike of the snobbery of the five towns, though less fiercely displayed, agreed with her own, really knew Eva. To them alone did she unveil herself, and by them she was idolised. "'She is simply splendid when you know her, such a jolly girl,' they would say to other people. But other people, especially other women, could not believe it. They fearfully respected her because she was very well dressed and had quantities of money. 
but they called her a curious creature. It was inconceivable to them that she should choose to work in a shop, and her tongue had a causticity which was sometimes exceedingly disconcerting and mortifying. As for men, she was shy of them, and, moreover, she loathed the elaborate and insincere ritual of deference which the average man practices towards women unrelated to him, particularly when they are young and rich. Her father she adored without knowing it, for he often angered her and humiliated her in private. As for the rest, she was, after all, only six-and-twenty. "'If you don't mind, I should like to walk along with you,' Clive Timmis said to her one Sunday evening in the porch of the Bethesda Chapel. "'I shall be glad,' she answered at once. "'Father isn't here, and I'm all alone.' Ezra Brunt was indeed seldom there, counting in the matter of attendance at chapel among what were called the weaker brethren. "'I'm going over to Oldcastle,' Clive explained calmly. So began the formal courtship. More than a month after Clive had settled in Machin Street, for he was far too discreet to engender by precipitancy any suspicion in the haunts of scandal that his true reason for establishing himself in his uncle's household was a certain rich young woman who was to be found every day next door. Guided as much by instinct as by tact, Clive approached Eva with an almost savage simplicity and naturalness of manner, ignoring not only her father's wealth, but all the feigned punctilio of a wooer. His face said, Let there be no beating about the bush. I like you. Hers answered, Good. We will see. From the first he pleased her, and not least in treating her exactly as she would have wished to be treated, namely as a quite plain person of that part of the middle class which is neither upper nor lower. Few men in the five towns would have been capable of forgetting Ezra Brunt's income in talking to Ezra Brunt's daughter. Fortunately, Timmis had a proud, confident spirit, the spirit of one who, unaided, has wrested success from the world's death-like clutch. Had Eva the reversion of fifty thousand a year instead of five, he, Clive, was still a prosperous, plain man, well able to support a wife in the position to which God had called him. Their walks together grew more and more frequent, and they became intimate, exchanging ideas and rejoicing openly at the similarity of those ideas. Although there was no concealment in these encounters, still there was a circumspection which resembled the clandestine. By a silent understanding, Clive did not enter the house at Pyreford. To have done so would have excited remark, for this house, unlike some, had never been the rendezvous of young men. Much less, therefore, did he invade the shop. No, the chief part of their love-making, for such it was, though the term would have roused Eva's contemptuous anger, occurred in the streets. In this they did but follow the traditions of their class. Thus the idyll, so matter-of-fact upon the surface, but within which glowed secret and adorable fires, progressed towards its culmination. Eva, the artless fool, oh, how simple are the wisest at times, thought that the affair was hid from the shop. But was it possible, was it possible, that in those tiny bedrooms on the third floor, 
where the heavy evening hours were ever lightened with breathless interminable recitals of what some he had said and some she had replied, such an enthralling episode should escape discovery? The dormitories knew of Eva's attachment before Eva herself. Yet none knew how it was known. The whisper arose like Venus from a sea of trivial gossip, miraculously exquisitely. On the night when the first rumour of it traversed the passages, there was scarcely any sleep at Brunt's, while Eva up at Pyreford slumbered as a young girl. On the Thursday afternoon with which we began, Brunt's was deserted, save for the housekeeper and Eva, who was writing letters in her room. "'I saw you from my window coming up the street,' she said to Clive, "'and so I ran down to open the door. "'Will you come into Father's room? "'He's in Manchester for the day, buying.' "'I knew that,' said Timmis. "'How did you know?' "'She observed that his manner was somewhat nervous and constrained. "'You yourself told me last night, don't you remember?' "'So I did.' "'That's why I sent the note round this morning to say I'd call this afternoon. "'You got it, I suppose?' "'She nodded thoughtfully. "'Well, what is this business you want to talk about?' "'It was spoken with a brave carelessness, "'but he caught the tremor in her voice "'and saw her little hand shake as it lay on the table "'amid her father's papers. "'Without knowing why he should do so, "'he stepped hastily forward and seized that hand.' Her emotion unmanned him. He thought he was going to cry. He could not account for himself. Eva, he said thickly, you know what the business is. You know, don't you? She smiled. That smile, the softness of her hand and the sparkle in her eye, the heave of her small bosom, it was the divinest miracle. Clive, manufacturer of Majolica, went hot and then cold, and then his wits were suddenly his own again. "'That's all right,' he murmured and sighed, and placed on Eva's lips the first kiss that had ever lain there. "'Dear boy,' she said later, "'you should have come up to Pyreford, not here, and when father was there.' "'Should I?' he answered happily. "'It just occurred to me all of a sudden this morning that you would be here, and that I couldn't wait.' "'You will come up to-night and see father?' "'I had meant to. You had better go home now.' "'Had I?' She nodded, putting her lips tightly together, a trick of hers. Come up about half-past eight. Good. I'll let myself out. He left her, and she gazed dreamily at the window, which looked on to a whitewashed yard. The next moment someone else entered the room with heavy footsteps. She turned round a little startled. It was her father. Why, you are back early, father. How— She stopped. Something in the old man's glance gave her a premonition of disaster. To this day she does not know what accident brought him from Manchester two hours sooner than usual, and to Machin Street instead of Pyreford. "'Has young Timmis been here?' he inquired curtly. "'Yes.' "'Ha!' with subdued sinister satisfaction. "'I saw him going out. He didn't see me.' Ezra Brunt deposited his hat and sat down. Intimate with all her father's various moods, she saw instantly and with terrible certainty that a series of chances had fatally combined themselves against her. If only she had not happened to tell Clive that her father would be at Manchester this day. 
If only her father had adhered to his customary hour of return. If only Clive had had the sense to make his proposal openly at Pyreford some evening. If only he had left a little earlier. If only her father had not caught him going out by the side door on a Thursday afternoon when the place was empty. Here, she guessed, was the suggestion of furtiveness which had raised her father's unreasoning anger, often fierce and always incalculable. "'Clive Timmis has asked me to marry him, father.' "'Has he?' "'Surely you must have known, father, that he and I were seeing each other a great deal. "'Not from your lips, my girl.' "'Well, father,' again she stopped. "'This strong and capable woman, gifted with a fine brain to organise "'and a powerful will to command. "'She quailed, robbed of speech, "'before the causeless, vindictive and infantile wrath.' of an old man who happened to be in a bad temper. She actually felt like a naughty schoolgirl before him. Such is the tremendous influence of lifelong habit, the irresistible power of the patria potestas, when it has never been relaxed. Ezra Brunt saw in front of him only a cowering child. "'Clive is coming up to see you to-night,' she went on, timidly, clearing her throat. "'Humph! Is he?' The rosy and tender dream of five minutes ago lay in fragments at Eva's feet. She brooded with stricken apprehension upon the forms of obstruction which his despotism might choose. The next morning Clive and his uncle breakfasted together as usual in the parlour behind the chemist's shop. Uncle, said Clive brusquely when the meal was nearly finished, I'd better tell you that I've proposed to Eva Brunt. Old George Timmis lured the Manchester Guardian, and gazed at Clive over his steel-rimmed spectacles. "'She is a good girl,' he remarked, "'and she will make you a good wife. Have you spoken to her father?' "'That's the point. I saw him last night, and I'll tell you what he said.' These were his words. "'You can marry my daughter, Mr. Timmis, when your uncle agrees to part with his shop.' "'That I shall never do, nephew,' said the aged patriarch, quietly and deliberately. "'Of course you won't, uncle. I shouldn't think of suggesting it. I'm merely telling you what he said.' Clive laughed harshly. "'Why,' he added, "'the man must be mad.' "'What did the young woman say to that?' his uncle inquired. Clive frowned. "'I didn't see her last night,' he said. "'I didn't ask to see her. I was too angry.' Just then the post arrived, and there was a letter for Clive, which he read and put carefully in his waistcoat pocket. "'Eva writes asking me to go to Pyreford tonight,' he said, after a pause. "'I'll soon settle it. Depend on that. If Ezra Brunt refuses his consent, so much the worse for him. I wonder whether he actually imagines that a grown man and a grown woman are to be—ah, well, I can't talk about it. It's too silly. I'll be off to the works.' When Clive reached Pyreford that night, Eva herself opened the door to him. She was wearing a grey frock, and over it a large white apron, perfectly plain. "'My girls are both out tonight,' she said, and I was making some puffs for the sewing-meeting tea. Come into the breakfast-room. This way,' she added, guiding him. He had entered the house on the previous night for the first time. She spoke hurriedly, and, instead of stopping in the breakfast-room, wandered uncertainly through into the greenhouse, to which it gave access by means of a French window. In the dark, confined space, amid the close-packed blossoms, they stood together. 
She bent down to smell at a musk plant. He took her hand and drew her soft and yielding form towards him and kissed her warm face. "'Oh, Clive,' she said, "'whatever are we to do?' "'Do,' he replied, enchanted by her instinctive feminine surrender and reliance upon him, which seemed the more precious in that creature so proud and reserved to all others. "'Do? Where is your father?' reading the signal in the dining-room. Every businessman in the five towns reads the Staffordshire signal from beginning to end every night. I will see him. Of course he is your father, but I will just tell him, as decently as I can, that neither you nor I will stand this nonsense. You mustn't, you mustn't see him. Why not? It will only lead to unpleasantness. That can't be helped. He never, never changes once he has said a thing. I know him. Clive was arrested by something in her tone, something new to him, that in its poignant finality seemed to have caught up and expressed in a single instant that bitterness of a lifetime's renunciation which falls to the lot of most women. "'Will you come outside?' he asked in a different voice. Without replying, she led the way down the long garden, which ended in an ivy-grown brick wall and a panorama of the immense valley of industries below. It was a warm, cloudy evening. The last silver tinge of an August twilight lay on the shoulder of the hill to the left. There was no moon, but the splendid watch-fires of labour flamed from ore-heap and furnace across the whole expanse, performing their nightly miracle of beauty. Trains crept with noiseless mystery along the middle distance under their canopies of yellow steam. Further off, the far-extending streets of Hanbridge made a map of starry lines on the blackness. To the southeast stared the cold blue electric lights of Knipe Railway Station. All was silent, save for a distant thunderous roar, the giant breathing of the forge at Cauldron Bar Ironworks. Eva leaned both elbows on the wall and looked forth. "'Do you mean to say,' said Clive, "'that Mr. Brunt will actually stick by what he has said?' "'Like grim death,' said Eva. "'But what's his idea?' "'Oh, how can I tell you?' she burst out passionately. "'Perhaps I did wrong. Perhaps I ought to have warned him earlier,' said to him. "'Father Clive Timmis is courting me. Ugh! He cannot bear to be surprised about anything.' But yet he must have known it was all an accident, Clive, all an accident. He saw you leaving the shop yesterday. He would say he caught you leaving the shop, sneaking off like... But Eva, I know, I know, don't tell me. But it was that, I'm sure. He would resent the mere look of things, and then he would think and think, and the notion of your uncle's shop would occur to him again after all these years. I can see his thoughts as plain, my dear, if he had not seen you at Machin Street yesterday, or if you had seen him and spoken to him, all might have gone right. He would have objected, but he would have given way in a day or two. Now he will never give way. I asked you just now what was to be done, but I knew all the time that there was nothing. There is one thing to be done, Eva, and the sooner the better. Do you mean that old Mr. Timmis must give up his shop to my father? Never, never. I mean, said Clive quietly, that we must marry without your father's consent. She shook her head slowly and sadly, relapsing into calmness. You shake your head, Eva, but it must be so. 
I can't, my dear. Do you mean to say that you will allow your father's childish whim, for it's nothing else, he can't find any objection to me as a husband for you, and he knows it, that you will allow his childish whim to spoil your life and mine? Remember, you are twenty-six, and I'm thirty-two. I can't do it. I daren't. I'm mad with myself for feeling like this. But I daren't, and even if I dared, I wouldn't. Clive, you don't know. You can't tell how it is. Her sorrowful, pathetic firmness daunted him. She was now composed, mistress again of herself, and her moral force dominated him. Then you and I are to be unhappy all our lives, Eva. The soft influences of the night seemed to direct her voice, as, after a long pause, she uttered the words, No one is ever quite unhappy in all this world. There was another pause, as she gazed steadily down into the wonderful valley. We must wait. Wait! echoed Clive with angry grimness. He will live for twenty years. No one is ever quite unhappy in all this world, she repeated dreamily as one might turn over a treasure in order to examine it. Now for the epilogue to the feud. Two years passed, and it happened that there was to be a revival at the Bethesda Chapel. One morning the superintendent minister and the revivalist called on Ezra Brunt at his shop. When informed of their presence, the great draper had an impulse of anger, for, like many stouter chapel-goers than himself, he would scarcely tolerate the intrusion of religion into commerce. However, the visit had an air of ceremony, and he could not decline to see these ambassadors of heaven in his private room. The revivalist, a cheery, shrewd man, whose powers of organisation were obvious, and who seemed to put organisation before everything else, pleased Ezra Brunt at once. We want a specially good congregation at the opening meeting tonight, said the revivalist. Now, the basis of a good congregation must necessarily be the regular pillars of the church, and therefore we are making a few calls this morning to ensure the presence of our chief men, the men of influence and position. You will come, Mr. Brunt, and you will let it be known among your employees that they will please you by coming too? Ezra Brunt was by no means a regular pillar of the Bethesda, but he had a vague sensation of flattery, and he consented. Indeed, there was no alternative. The first hymn was being sung when he reached the chapel. To his surprise, he found the place crowded in every part. A man whom he did not know led him to a wooden form which had been put in the space between the front pews and the communion rail. He felt strange there, and uneasy, apprehensive. The usual discreet somnolence of the chapel had been disturbed as by some indecorous but formidable awakener. The air was electric. Anything might occur. Ezra was astounded by the mere volume of the singing. Never had he heard such singing. At the end of the hymn the congregation sat down, hiding their faces in expectation. The revivalist stood erect and terrible in the pulpit, no longer a shrewd, cheery man of the world, but the very mouthpiece of the wrath and mercy of God. Ezra's self-importance dwindled before that gaze, till from a renowned magnate of the five towns he became an item in the multitude of suppliants. He profoundly wished he had never come. "'Remember the hymn,' said the revivalist, with austere emphasis. 
My richest gain I count but loss, And poor contempt on all my pride. The admirable histrionic art with which he intensified the consonants in the last line produced a tremendous effect. Not for nothing was this man celebrated throughout Methodism as a saver of souls. When, after a pause, he raised his hand and ejaculated, Let us pray, sobs could be heard throughout the chapel. The revival had begun. At the end of a quarter of an hour, Ezra Brunt would have given fifty pounds to be outside, but he could not stir. He was magnetised. Soon the revivalist came down from the pulpit and stood within the communion rail, whence he addressed the nearmost part of the people in low, soothing tones of persuasion. Apparently he ignored Ezra Brunt, but the man was convicted of sin and felt himself melting like an icicle in front of a fire. He recalled the days of his youth, the piety of his father and mother, and the long traditions of a stern, dissenting family. He had backslidden, slackened in the use of the means of grace, run after the things of the world. It is true that none of his chiefest iniquities presented themselves to him. He was quite unconscious of them even then, but the lesser ones were more than sufficient to overwhelm him. Class leaders were now reasoning with stricken sinners, and Ezra, who could not take his eyes off the revivalist, heard the footsteps of those who were going to the inquiry room for more private counsel. In vain he argued that he was about to be ridiculous, that the idea of him, Ezra Brunt, a professed Wesleyan for half a century, being publicly saved at the age of fifty-seven, was not to be entertained, that the town would talk, that his business might suffer if for any reason he should be morally bound to apply to it too strictly the principles of the New Testament. He was under the spell. The tears coursed down his long cheeks, and he forgot to care, but sat entranced by the revivalist's marvellous voice. Suddenly, with an awful sob, he bent and hid his face in his hands. The spectacle of the old, proud man, helpless in the grasp of profound emotion, was a sight to rend the heartstrings. Brother, be of good cheer, said a tremulous and benign voice above him. The love of God compasses all things, only believe. He looked up and saw the venerable face and long white beard of George Christopher Timmis. Ezra Brunt shrank away, embittered and ashamed. I cannot, he murmured with difficulty. The love of God is all-powerful. "'Will it make you part with that bit of property, thank you?' said Ezra Brunt, with a kind of despairing ferocity. "'Brother,' replied the aged servant of God, unmoved, "'if my shop is in truth a stumbling-block in this solemn hour, you shall have it.' Ezra Brunt was staggered. "'I believe, I believe!' he cried. "'Praise God,' said the chemist, with majestic joy." Three months afterwards, Eva Brunt and Clive Timmis were married. It is characteristic of the fine sentimentality which underlies the surface harshness of the inhabitants of the five towns, that, though number 54 Machin Street was duly transferred to Ezra Brunt, the chemist retiring from business, he has never rebuilt it to accord with the rest of the premises. In all its shabbiness it stands between the other big, dazzling shops, 
as a reminding monument. End of chapter 5Chapter six of Tales of the Five Towns. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Clifton. Tales of the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett. Chapter six Phantom. Part one. The heart of the Five Towns, that undulating patch of England covered with mean streets and dominated by tall smoking chimneys, whence are derived your cups and saucers and plates, some of your coal and a portion of your iron, is Hanbridge, a borough larger and busier than its four sisters, and even more grimy and commonplace than they. And the heart of Hanbridge is probably the offices of the Five Towns Banking Company, where the last trace of magic and romance is beaten out of human existence, and the meaning of life is expressed in balances, deposits, percentages, and overdrafts, especially overdrafts. In a fine suite of rooms on the first floor of the bank building resides Mr. Lionel Woolley, the manager, with his wife May and their children. Mrs. Woolley is compelled to change her white window curtains once a week because of the smuts. Mr. Woolley, forty-five, rather bald, frigidly suave, positive, egotistic and pontifical, is a specimen of the man of business who is nothing else but a man of business. His career has been a calculation from which sentiment is entirely omitted. He has no instinct for the things which cannot be defined and assessed. Scarcely a manufacturer in Hanbridge but who inimically and fearfully regards Mr. Woolley as an amazing instance of a creature without a soul and the absence of soul in a fellow-man must be very marked indeed before a Hanbridge manufacturer notices it. There are some sixty thousand immortal souls in Hanbridge, but they seldom attract attention. Yet Mr. Woolley was once brought into contact with the things which cannot be defined and assessed. Once he stood face to face with some strange, visible resultant of those secret forces that lie beyond the human ken and, moreover, the adventure affected the whole of his domestic life. The wonder and the pathos of the story lie in the fact that nature, prodigal though she is known to be, should have wasted the rare and beautiful visitation on just Mr. Woolley. Mr. Woolley was bathed in romance of the most singular kind, and the precious fluid ran off him like water off a duck's back. Part 2 Ten years ago, on a Thursday afternoon in July, Lionel Woolley, as he walked up through the new park at Bursley to his celibate rooms in Park Terrace, was making addition sums out of various items connected with the institution of marriage. Bursley is next door to Hanbridge, and Lionel happened then to be cashier of the Bursley branch of the bank. He had in mind two possible wives, each of whom possessed advantages which appealed to him and he was unable to decide between them by any mathematical process. Suddenly, from a glazed shelter near the empty bandstand, there emerged in front of him one of the delectable creatures who had excited his fancy. May Lawton was twenty-eight, an orphan and a schoolmistress. She, too, had celibate rooms in Park Terrace, and it was owing to this coincidence that Lionel had made her acquaintance six months previously. 
She was not pretty, but she was tall, straight, well-dressed, well-educated, and not lacking in experience, and she had a little money of her own. "'Well, Mr. Woolley,' she said easily, stopping for him as she raised her sunshade. "'How satisfied you look!' "'It's the sight of you,' he replied, without a moment's hesitation. He had a fine, assured way with women. He need not have envied a curate accustomed to sewing-meetings. And May Lawton belonged to the type of girl whose demeanour always challenges the masculine in a man. Gazing at her, Lionel was swiftly conscious of several things. The piquancy of her snubbed nose, the brightness of her smile, at once defiant and wistful, the lingering softness of her gloved hand, and the extraordinary charm of her sunshade, which matched her dress and formed a sort of canopy and frame for that intelligent, tantalising face. He remembered that of late he and she had grown very intimate, and it came upon him with a shock, as though he had just opened a telegram which said so, that May, and not the other girl, was his destined mate. And he thought of her fortune, tiny but nevertheless useful, and how clever she was, and how inexplicably different from the rest of her sex, and how she would adorn his house and set him off and help him in his career. He heard himself saying negligently to friends, My wife speaks French like a native. Of course my wife has travelled a great deal. My wife has thoroughly studied the management of children. Now my wife does understand the art of dress. I put my wife's bit of money in so-and-so. In short, Lionel was as near being in love as his character permitted. And while he walked by May's side past the bowling greens at the summit of the hill, she lightly quizzing the raw newness of the park and its appurtenances, he wondered, he honestly wondered, that he could ever have hesitated between May Lawton and the other. Her superiority was too obvious. She was a woman of the world. She, in a flash, he knew that he would propose to her that very afternoon and when he had suggested a stroll towards Moorthorne, and she had deliciously agreed, he was conscious of a tumultuous uplifting and splendid carelessness of spirits. Imagine me bringing it to a climax today, he reflected, profoundly pleased with himself. Ah, oh, well, it will be settled once for all. He admired his own decision. He was quite struck by it. I shall call her May before I leave her, he thought, gazing at her and discovering how well the name suited her with its significances of alertness, geniality, and half-mocking coyness. So, school is closed, he said, and added humorously, broken up is the technical term, I believe. Yes, she answered, and I had walked out into the park to meditate seriously upon the question of my holiday. She caught his eye in a net of bright glances, and romance was in the air. They had crossed a couple of smoke-soiled fields, and struck into the old Hanbridge Road, just below the abandoned toll-house, with its broad eaves. "'And whither do your meditations point?' he demanded playfully. "'My meditations point to Switzerland,' she said. "'I have friends in Lausanne.' The reference to foreign climes impressed him. "'Would that I could go to Switzerland, too!' he exclaimed, and privately, "'Now for it. I am about to begin.' Why? she questioned, with elaborate simplicity. 
At the moment, as they were passing the toll-house, the other girl appeared surprisingly from round the corner of the toll-house, where the lane from Toft End joins the high road. This second creature was smaller than Miss Lawton, less assertive, less intelligent perhaps, but much more beautiful. Everyone halted, and everyone blushed. "'May!' the interrupter at length stammered. "'May!' responded Miss Lawton lamely. The other girl was named May, too, May Dean, child of the well-known Majolica manufacturer who lived with his sons and daughter in a solitary and ancient house at Toft End. Lionel Woolley said nothing until they had all shaken hands. His famous way with women seemed to have deserted him, and then he actually stated that he had forgotten an appointment and must depart. He had gone before the girls could move. When they were alone, the two Mays fronted each other, confused, hostile, almost homicidal. "'I hope I didn't spoil a tete-a-tete,' said May Dean, stiffly and sharply, in a manner quite foreign to her soft and yielding nature. The schoolmistress, abandoning herself to an inexplicable but overwhelming impulse, took breath for a proud lie. "'No,' she answered, "'but if you had come three minutes earlier—' She smiled calmly. "'Oh!' murmured Maydeen, after a pause. Part 3 That evening Maydeen returned home at half-past nine. She had been with her two brothers to a lawn tennis party at Hillport, and she told her father, who was reading the Staffordshire Signal in his accustomed solitude, that the boys were staying later for cards, but that she had declined to stay because she felt tired. She kissed the old widower good-night, and said that she should go to bed at once. But before retiring she visited the housekeeper in the kitchen in order to discuss certain household matters—Jim's early breakfast, the proper method of washing Herbert's new flannels—Herbert would be very angry if they were shrunk—and the dog biscuits for Carlo. These questions settled, she went to her room, drew the blind, lighted some candles, and sat down near the window. She was twenty-two, and she had about her that strange and charming nun-like mystery which often comes to a woman who lives alone and unguessed at among male relatives. Her room was her bower. No one save the servants and herself ever entered it. Mr. Dean and Jim and Bertie might glance carelessly through the open door in passing along the corridor, but had they chanced in idle curiosity to enter, the room would have struck them as unfamiliar and they might perhaps have exclaimed with momentary interest, "'So this is May's room!' And some hint that May was more than a daughter and sister, a woman withdrawn, secret, disturbing, living her own inner life side by side with a household life, might have penetrated their obtuse paternal and fraternal masculinity. Her beautiful face, the nose and mouth were perfect, and at either extremity of the upper lip grew a soft down, her dark hair, her quiet voice, and her gentle acquiescence, diversified by occasional outbursts of sarcasm, appealed to them and won them. But they accepted her as something, of course, as something which went without saying. They adored her, and did not know that they adored her. May took off her hat, stuck the pins into it again, and threw it on the bed, whose white and green counterpane hung down nearly to the floor on either side. Then she lay back in the chair, and, pulling away the blind, glanced through the window. The moon, 
rather dim behind the furnace lights of Red Cow Ironworks, was rising over Moorthorne. May dropped the blind with a wearied gesture, and turned within the room, examining its contents as if she had not seen them before. The wardrobe, the chest of drawers, which was also a dressing-table, the washstand, the dwarf bookcase, with its store of Edna Lyles, Elizabeth Gaskells, Thackeray's, Charlotte Yongs, Charlotte Bronte's, a Thomas Hardy or so, and some old school-books. She looked at the pictures, including a sampler worked by a deceased aunt, at the loud-ticking Swiss clock on the mantelpiece, at the higgledy-piggledy photographs there, at the new Axminster carpet, the piece of linoleum in front of the washstand, and the bad joining of the wallpaper to the left of the door. She missed none of the details which she knew so well, with such long, monotonous intimacy, and sighed. Then she got up from the chair, and, opening a small drawer in the chest of drawers, put her hand familiarly to the back, and drew forth a photograph. She carried the photograph to the light of the candles on the mantelpiece, and gazed at it attentively, puckering her brows. It was a portrait of Lionel Woolley. Heaven knows by what subterfuge or lucky accident she had obtained it, for Lionel certainly had not given it to her. She loved Lionel. She had loved him for five years, with a love silent, blind, intense, irrational, and too elemental to be concealed. Everyone knew of May's passion. Many women admired her taste, a few were shocked and puzzled by it. All the men of her acquaintance either pitied or despised her for it. Her father said nothing. Her brothers were less cautious, and summed up their opinion of Lionel in the curt, scornful assertion that he showed a tendency to cheat at tennis. But May would never hear ill of him. He was a god to her, and she could not hide her worship. For more than a year, until lately, she had been almost sure of him, and then came a faint, vague rumour concerning Lionel and May Lawton, a rumour which she had refused to take seriously. The encounter of that afternoon and Miss Lawton's triumphant remark had dazed her. For seven hours she had existed in a kind of semi-conscious delirium, in which she could perceive nothing but the fatal fact emerging more clearly every moment from the welter of her thoughts, that she had lost Lionel. Lionel had proposed to May Lawton, and been accepted, just before she surprised them together. And Lionel, with a man's excusable cowardice, had left his betrothed to announce the engagement. She tore up the photograph, put the fragments in the grate, and set a light to them. Her father's step sounded on the stairs. He hesitated and knocked sharply at her door. "'What's burning, May?' "'It's all right, father,' she answered calmly. "'I'm only burning some papers in the fire-grate.' "'Well, see you don't burn the house down.' He passed on. Then she found a sheet of note-paper, and wrote on it in pencil, using the mantelpiece for a desk. "'Dear home, good-night, good-bye.' She cogitated, and wrote further, "'Forgive me, May.' She put the message in an envelope, and wrote on the envelope, Jim, and placed it prominently in front of the clock. But after she had looked at it for a minute, she wrote, Father, above Jim, and then Herbert, below. There were noises in the hall. The boys had returned earlier than she expected. 
As they went along the corridor and caught a glimpse of her light under the door, Jim cried gaily, "'Now then, out with that light, a little thing like you ought to be asleep hours since.' She listened for the bang of their door, and then, very hurriedly, she removed her pink frock and put on an old black one, which was rather tight in the waist. And she donned her hat, securing it carefully with both pins, extinguished the candles, and crept quietly downstairs, and so by the back door, into the garden. Carlo, the retriever, came halfway out of his kennel, and greeted her in the moonlight with a yawn. She patted his head, and ran stealthily up the garden, through the gate, and up the waste green land towards the crown of the hill. Part 4 the top of Toft End is the highest land in the five towns, and from it may be clearly seen all the lurid evidences of manufacture which sweep across the borders of the sky on north, east, west, and south. North-eastwards lie the moorlands, and far-off manifold the metropolis of the moorlands, as it is called. On this night the furnaces of Red Cow Ironworks, in the hollow to the east, were in full blast. Their fluctuating yellow light illuminated queerly the grass of the fields above Dean's house, and the regular roar of their breathing reached that solitary spot like the distant rumour of some leviathan beast angrily fuming. Further away to the southwest, the Cauldron Bar ironworks reproduced the same phenomena, and round the whole horizon, near and far, except to the northeast, the lesser fires of labour leapt and flickered and glinted in their mists of smoke, burning ceaselessly, as they burned every night and every day at all seasons of all years. The town of Bursley slept in the deep valley to the west, and vast Hambridge in the shallower depression to the south, like two sleepers accustomed to rest quietly amid great disturbances. The beacons of their town halls and churches kept watch, and the whole scene was dominated by the placidity of the moon, which had now risen clear of the red cow furnace clouds, and was passing upwards through tracts of stars. Into this scene, climbing up from the direction of Manifold, came Lionel Woolley, nearly at midnight having walked some eighteen miles in a vain effort to re-establish his self-satisfaction by a process of reasoning and ingenious excuses. Lionel felt that, in the brief episode of the afternoon, he had scarcely behaved with dignity. In other words, he was fully and painfully aware that he must have looked a fool, a coward, an ass, a contemptible and pitiful person in the eyes of at least one girl, if not of two. He did not like this. No man would have liked it. And to Lionel the memory of an undignified act was acute torture. Why had he bidden the girls adieu and departed? Why had he, in fact, run away? What, precisely, would May Lawton think of him? How could he explain his conduct to her, and to himself? And had that worshipping, affectionate thing, May Dean, taken note of his confusion? Of the confusion of him who was never confused, who was equal to every occasion and every emergency? These were some of the questions which harried him and declined to be settled. He had walked to Manifold, and had tea at the Roebuck, and walked back, and still the questions were harrying. And as he came over the hill by the field path, and described the lone house of the Deans in the light of the Red Cow furnaces and of the moon, the worship of May Dean seemed suddenly very precious to him, 
and he could not bear to think that any stupidity of his should have impaired it. Then he saw May Dean walking slowly across the field, close to an abandoned pit-shaft, whose low protecting circular wall of brick was crumbling to ruin on the side nearest to him. She stopped, appeared to gaze at him intently, turned and began to approach him. And he too, moved by a mysterious impulse which he did not pause to examine, swerved and quickened his step in order to lessen the distance between them. He did not at first even feel surprised that she should be wandering solitary on the hill at that hour. Presently she stood still while he continued to move forward. It was as if she drew him, and soon in the pale moonlight and the wavering light of the furnaces he could decipher all the details of her face, and he saw that she was smiling fondly, invitingly, admiringly, lustrously, with the old undiminished worship and affection. And he perceived a dark discoloration on her right cheek, as though she had suffered a blow, but this mark did not long occupy his mind. He thought, suddenly, of the strong probability that her father would leave a nice little bit of money to each of his three children, and he thought of her beauty, and of her timid fragility in the tight black dress, and of her immense and unquestioning love for him, which would survive all accidents and mishaps. He seemed to sink luxuriously into this grand passion of hers, which he deemed quite natural and proper, as into a soft feather bed. To live secure in an atmosphere of exhaustless worship, to keep a fount of balm and admiration forever in the house, a bubbling spring of passionate appreciation, which would be continually available for the refreshment of his self-esteem. To be always sure of an obedience blind and willing, a subservience which no tyranny and no harshness and no whim would rouse into revolt, to sit on a throne with so much beauty kneeling at his feet. And the possession of her beauty would be a source of legitimate pride to him. People would often refer to the beautiful Mrs. Woolley. He felt that, in sending May Dean to interrupt his highly emotional conversation with May Lawton, Providence had watched over him and done him a good turn. May Lawton had advantages, and striking advantages, but he could not be sure of her. The suspicion that if she married him she would marry him for her own ends caused him a secret disquiet, and he feared that one day, perhaps one morning at breakfast, she might take it into her intelligent head to mock him to exercise upon him her gift of irony, and to intimate to him that if he fancied she was his slave he was deceived, that she sincerely admired him he never for an instant doubted, but... And, moreover, the unfortunate episode of the afternoon might have cooled her ardour to freezing point. He stood now in front of his worshipper, and the notion crossed his mind that in after years he could say to his friends, I proposed to my wife at midnight under the moon. Not many men have done that. Good evening, he ventured to the girl, and he added with bravado, We've met before today, haven't we? She made no reply, but her smile was more affectionate, more inviting than ever. I'm glad of this opportunity, very glad, he proceeded. I've been wanting to... You must know, my dear girl, how I feel. She gave a gesture, charming in its sweet humility, as if to say, Who am I that I should dare? And then he proposed to her, asked her to share his life, and all that sort of thing. And when he had finished, he thought, 
It's done now, anyway. Strange to relate, she offered no immediate reply, but she bent a little towards him with shining happy eyes. He had an impulse to seize her in his arms and kiss her, but prudence suggested that he should defer the right. She turned and began to walk slowly and meditatively towards the pit-shaft. He followed almost at her side, but a foot or so behind, waiting for her to speak. And, as he waited, expectant, he looked at her profile and reflected how well the name May suited her, with its significances of shyness and dreamy hope, and hidden fire and the modesty of spring. And while he was thus savouring her face, and they were still ten yards from the pit-shaft, she suddenly disappeared from his vision, as it were by a conjuring trick. He had a horrible sensation in his spinal column. He was not the man to mistrust the evidence of his senses, and he knew, therefore, that he had been proposing to a phantom. Part 5 The next morning, early because of Jim's early breakfast, when May Dean's disappearance became known to the members of the household, Jim had the idea of utilising Carlo in the search for her. The retriever went straight without a fault to the pit-shaft, and May was discovered alive and unscathed save for a contusion of the face and a sprain in the wrist. A suicidal plunge had been arrested at only a few feet from the top of the shaft by a cross-stay of timber upon which she lay prone. There was no reason why the affair should be made public, and it was not. It was suppressed into one of those secrets which embed themselves in the history of families, and after two or three generations blossom into romantic legends full of appropriate circumstantial detail. Lionel Woolley spent a woeful night at his rooms. He did not know what to do, and on the following day May Lawton encountered him again and proved by her demeanour that the episode of the previous afternoon had caused no estrangement. Lionel vacillated. The sway of the schoolmistress was almost restored, and it would have been restored fully had he not been preoccupied by a feverish curiosity. The curiosity to know whether or not May Dean was dead. He felt that she must indeed be dead, and he lived through the day expectant of the news of her sudden decease. Towards night his state of mind was such that he was obliged to call at the Dean's. May heard him and insisted on seeing him. More, she insisted on seeing him alone in the breakfast-room where she reclined, interestingly white, on the sofa. Her father and brothers objected strongly to the interview, but they yielded, afraid that a refusal might induce hysteria and worse things. And when Lionel Woolley came into the room, May, steeped in felicity, related to him the story of her impulsive crime. "'I was so happy,' she said, "'when I knew that Miss Lawton had deceived me.' and before he could inquire what she meant, she continued rapidly, I must have been unconscious, but I felt you were there, and something of me went out towards you, and, oh, the answer to your question, I heard your question, the real me heard it, but that something could not speak. My question? You asked a question, didn't you? she faltered, sitting up. He hesitated, and then surrendered himself to her immense love, and sank into it, and forgot May Lawton. Yes, he said. The answer is yes. Oh, you must have known the answer would be yes. You did know, didn't you? He nodded grandly. She sighed with delicious and overwhelming joy. 
In the ecstasy of the achievement of her desire, the girl gave little thought to the psychic aspect of the possibly unique wooing. As for Lionel, he refused to dwell on it even in thought. And so that strange, magic, yearning effluence of a soul into a visible projection and shape was ignored, slurred over, and after ten years of domesticity in the bank premises, he's gradually being forgotten. He is a man of business, and she, with her fading beauty, her ardent, continuous worship of the idol, her half-dozen small children, the eldest of whom is only eight, and the white window curtains to change every week because of the smuts. Do you suppose she has time or inclination to ponder upon the theory of the subliminal consciousness and kindred mysteries? End of chapter 6「Seven of Tales of the Five Towns This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Clifton Tales of the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett Chapter 7 Tiddy Follow It was the dinner hour, and a group of ragged and clay-soiled apprentice boys were making a great noise in the yard of Henry Miners and Co.'s small, compact earthenware manufactory up at Toft End. Toft End caps the ridge to the east of Bursley, and Bursley, which has been the home of the potter for ten centuries, is the most ancient of the five towns in Staffordshire. The boys, dressed for the most part in shirt, trousers and boots, all equally ragged and insecure, were playing at prison bars. Soon the game ended abruptly in a clamorous dispute upon a point of law, and it was not recommenced. The dispute dying a natural death, the tireless energies of the boys needed a fresh outlet. Inspired by a common instinct, they began at once to bait one of their number, a slight youngster of twelve years, much better clothed than the rest, who had adventurously strolled in from a neighbouring manufactory. This child answered their jibes in an amiable, silly, drawling tone, which seemed to justify the epithet loony frequently applied to him. Now and then he stammered, and then companions laughed loud, and he with them. It was known that several years ago he had fallen down a flight of stone steps, alighting on the back of his head, and that ever since he had been deaf of one ear and under some trifling mental derangement. His sublime calmness under their jests baffled them, until the terrible figure of Mr. Machin, the engine-man, standing at the door of the slip-house, caught their attention and suggested a plan full of joyous possibilities. They gathered round the lad, and, talking in subdued murmurs, unanimously urged him with many persuasions to a certain course of action. He declined the scheme, and declined again. Suddenly a boy shouted, "'Thee dares na!' I dare was the drawled, smiling answer. I tell thee thee dares na. I tell thee I dare, and thereupon he slowly but resolutely set out for the slip-house door and Mr. Machin. Eli Machin was, beyond doubt, the most considerable employee on Clark's bank, manufactory. Even Henry Clark approached him with a subtly indicated deference, and whenever Silas Emery, the immensely rich and miserly sleeping partner in the firm, came up to visit the works, these two men chatted as old friends. 
In a modern earthenware manufactory, the engine room is the source of all activity, for, owing to the inventive genius of a famous and venerable son of the five towns, steam now presides at nearly every stage in the long process of turning earth into ware. It moves the pug-mill, the jollies and the marvellous batting machines, dries the unfired clay, heats the printer's stoves, and warms the offices where the jacket-men dwell. Coal is a tremendous item in the cost of production, and a competent, economical engine-man can be sure of good wages and a choice of berths. He is desired like a good domestic servant. Eli Machin was the prince of engine-men. His engine never went wrong, his coal-bills were never extravagant, and, supreme virtue, he was never absent on Mondays. From his post in the slip-house he watched over the whole works like a father, stern, gruff, forbidding, but to be trusted absolutely. He was sixty years old, and had been putting by for nearly half a century. He lived in a tiny villa cottage with his bedridden cheerful wife, and lent small sums on mortgage of approved freeholds at five per cent, no more and no less. Secure behind this rampart of saved money, he was the equal of the king on the throne. Not a magnate in all the five towns who would dare to be condescending to Eli Machin. He had been a sidesman at the old church. A trades union had once asked him to become a working-man candidate for the Bursley Town Council, but he had refused because he did not care for the possibility of losing caste by being concerned in a strike. His personal respectability was entirely unsullied, and he worshipped this abstract quality as he worshipped God. There was only one blot, but how foul, on Eli Machin's career, and that had been dropped by his daughter Miriam, when, defying his authority, she married a scene-shifter at Hanbridge Theatre. The atrocious idea of being connected with the theatre had rendered him speechless for a time. He could but endure it in the most awful silence that ever hid passionate feeling. Then, one day, he had burst out, The wench is no better than a tiddy for lull. Only this solitary phrase. Nothing else. What a tiddy for lull was, no one quite knew, but the word getting about stuck to him, and for some weeks boys used to shout it after him in the streets, until he caught one of them, and in thirty seconds put an end to the practice. Thenceforth Miriam, with all hers, was dead to him. When her husband expired of consumption, Eli Machin saw the avenging arm of the Lord in action and when her boy grew to be a source of painful anxiety to her, he said to himself that the wrath of heaven was not yet cooled towards this impious daughter. The passage of fifteen years had apparently in no way softened his resentment. The challenged lad in Miner's yard slowly approached the slip-house door and halted before Eli Machin, grinning. "'Well, young un,' the old man said absently, "'what does want?' Tiddy Fallol, Grandfather, the child drawled in his silly, irritating voice, and added, They said I dare na say it to ye. Without an instant's hesitation, Eli Machin raised his still powerful arm, and, catching the boy under the ear, knocked him down. 
the other boys yelled with unaffected pleasure and ran away. "'Get up and be off with ye. You. you dunna belong to this bank,' said Eli Machin in cold anger to the lad. But the lad did not stir. The lad's eyes were closed, and he lay white on the stones. Eli Machin bent down and peered through his spectacles at the prone form upon which the midday sun was beating. "'It's Miriam's boy,' he ejaculated under his breath, and looked round as if in inquiry. The yard was empty. Then, with quick decision, he picked up this limp and inconvenient parcel of humanity, and hastened, ran, with it out of the yard, into the road. Down the road he ran, turned to the left into Clough Street, and stopped before a row of small brown cottages. At the open door of one of these cottages a woman sat sewing. She was rather stout and full-bosomed, with a fair, fresh face, full of sense and peace. She looked under thirty, but was older. "'Here's thy Tommy, Miriam,' said Eli Machin shortly. "'He give me some of his sauce, and I doubt I've done him an injury.' The woman dropped her sewing. "'Eh, hey, dear,' she cried, "'is that lad of mine in mischief again? I do hope he's no limb-broken.' "'It dinna that,' said the old man, "'but he's dazed-like. Better lay him on th squab.' She calmly took Tommy and placed him gently down on the check-covered sofa under the window. "'Come in, father, do.' The man obeyed, astonished at the entire friendliness of this daughter, whom, though he had frequently seen her, he had never spoken to for more than ten years. Her manner, at once filial and quite natural, perfectly ignored the long breach, and disclosed no trace of animosity. Father and daughter examined the unconscious child. Pale, pulseless, cold, he lay on the sofa like a corpse, except for the short, faint breaths which he drew through his blue lips. "'I doubt I've killed him,' said Eli. "'Nay, nay, father,' and her face actually smiled. This supremacy of the soul against years of continued misfortune lifted her high above him, and he suddenly felt himself an inferior creature. "'I'll go for the doctor,' he said. "'Nay, I shall need ye,' and she put her head out of the window. "'Mrs. Wally!' "'Will ye let your Lucy run quick for the club doctor? My Tommy's hurt.' The whole street awoke instantly from its nap, and in a few moments every door was occupied. Miriam closed her own door softly as though she might wake the boy, and spoke in whispers to people through the window, finally telling them to go away. When the doctor came, half an hour afterwards, she had done all that she knew for Tommy, without the slightest apparent result. "'What is it?' asked the doctor curtly, as he lifted the child's thin and lifeless hand. Eli Machin explained that he had boxed the boy's ear. "'Tommy was impudent to his grandfather,' Miriam added hastily. "'Which ear?' the doctor inquired. "'It was the left.' He gazed into it, and then raised the boy's right leg and arm. "'There is no paralysis,' he said." Then he felt the heart, and then took out his stethoscope and applied it, listening intently. "'Canst hear out?' the old man said. "'I cannot,' he answered. "'Don't say that, doctor, don't say that,' said Miriam, with an accent of appeal. "'In these cases it is almost impossible to tell whether the patient is alive or dead. We must wait. Mrs. Baddeley, make a mustard plaster for his feet, and we will put another over the heart.' And so they waited one hour while the clock ticked, 
and the mustard plasters gradually cooled. Then Tommy's lips parted. After another half-hour, the doctor said, "'I must go now. I'll come again at six. Do nothing but apply fresh plasters. Be sure to keep his neck free. He is breathing, but I may as well be plain with you. There is a great risk of your child dying in this condition.' Neighbours were again at the window, and Miriam drew the blind, waving them away. At six o'clock the doctor reappeared. "'There is no change,' he remarked. "'I will call in before I go to bed.' When he lifted the latch for the third time, at ten o'clock, Eli Machin and Miriam still sat by the sofa, and Tommy still lay thereon, moveless, a terrible enigma. But the glass lamp was lighted on the mantelpiece, and Miriam's sewing, by which she earned a livelihood, had been hidden out of sight. "'There is no change,' said the doctor. "'You can do nothing except hope.' "'And pray,' the calm mother added. Eli neither stirred nor spoke. For nine hours he had absolutely forgotten his engine. He knew the boy would die. The clock struck eleven, twelve, one, two, three, each time fretting the nerves of the old man like a rasp. It was the hour of summer dawn. A cold grey light fell unkindly across the small figure on the sofa. "'Open the door a bit, father,' said Miriam. "'The parlour's getting close. The lad canna breathe.' "'Nay, lass,' Eli sighed as he stumbled obediently to the door. "'The lad'll breathe no more. I've killed him in my anger.' He frowned heavily, as though someone was annoying him. "'Hist!' she exclaimed, when, after extinguishing the lamp, she returned to her boy's side. "'He's reddened! He's reddened! Look thee at his cheeks, father!' She seized the child's inert hands and rubbed them between her own. The blood was now plain in Tommy's face. His legs faintly twitched. His breathing was slower. Miriam moved the coverlet and put her head upon his heart. "'It's beating loud, father,' she cried. "'Bless God!' Eli stared at the child with the fixity of a statue. Then Tommy opened his eyes for an instant. The old man groaned. Tommy looked vacantly round, closed his eyes again, and was unmistakably asleep. He slept for one minute, then waked. Eli involuntarily put a hand on the sofa. Tommy gazed at him, and, with the most heavenly, innocent smile of recognition, lightly touched his grandfather's hand. Then he turned over on his right side. In the anguish of sudden joy, Eli gave a deep, piteous sob. That smile burnt into him like a coal fire. "'Now for the beef-tea,' said Miriam, crying. "'Beef-tea?' the boy repeated after him, mildly questioning. "'Yes, my poppet,' she answered. And then aside, "'Father, he can hear in his left ear. Did you notice it?' "'It's a miracle, a miracle of God,' said Eli. In a few hours Tommy was as well as ever, indeed better. Not only was his hearing fully restored, but he had ceased to stammer and the thin, almost imperceptible cloud upon his intellect was dissipated. The doctor expressed but little surprise at these phenomena, and, in fact, stated that similar things had occurred often before and were duly written down in the books of medicine. But Eli Machin's firm, instinctive faith that Providence had intervened will never be shaken. 
Miriam and Tommy now live in the villa cottage with the old people. End of chapter 7《Eight of Tales of the Five Towns This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Clifton. Tales of the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett. Chapter Eight The Idiot. William Froyle, ostler at the Queen's Arms at Moorthorne, took the letter, and, with a curt nod which stifled the loquacity of the village postman, went at once from the yard into the coach house. He had recognised the handwriting on the envelope, and the recognition of it gave form and quick life to all the vague suspicions that had troubled him some months before, and again during the last few days. He felt suddenly the near approach of a frightful calamity which had long been stealing towards him. A wire-sheathed lantern set on a rough oaken table cast a wavering light round the coach-house, and dimly showed the inner stable. Within the latter could just be distinguished the mottled grey flanks of a fat cob, which dragged its chain occasionally, making the large, slow movements of a horse comfortably lodged in its stall. The pleasant odour of animals and hay filled the wide spaces of the shed, and through the half-open door came a fresh, thin mist rising from the rain-soaked yard in the November evening. Froyle sat down on the oaken table, his legs dangling, and looked again at the envelope before opening it. He was a man about thirty years of age, with a serious and thoughtful rather heavy countenance. He had a long, light moustache, and his skin was a fresh, rosy salmon colour. His straw-tinted hair was cut very short, except over the forehead, where it grew full and bushy. Dressed in his rough stable corduroys, his forearms bare and white, he had all the appearance of the sturdy Englishman, the sort of Englishman that crosses the world in order to find vent for his taciturn energy on virgin soils. From the whole village he commanded and received respect. He was known for a scholar, and it was his scholarship which had obtained for him the proud position of secretary to the Provident Society styled the Queen's Arms Slate Club. His respectability and his learning combined had enabled him to win with dignity the hand of Susie Trimmer, the grocer's daughter, to whom he had been engaged about a year. The village could not make up its mind concerning that match. Without doubt it was a social victory for Froyle, but everyone wondered that so sedate and sagacious a man should have seen in Susie a suitable mate. He tore open the envelope with his huge forefinger, and, bending down towards the lantern, began to read the letter. It ran, Oldcastle Street, Bursley. Dear Will, I asked father to tell you, but he would not. He said I must write. Dear Will, I hope you will never see me again. As you will see by the above address, I am now at Aunt Penrose's at Bursley. She is awful angry, but I was obliged to leave the village because of my shame. I have been a wicked girl. It was in July. You know the man because you asked me about him one Sunday night. He is no good. He's a villain. Please forget all about me. I want to go to London. So many people know me here, and what with people coming in from the village too. Please forgive me. S. Trimmer. 
After reading the letter a second time, Froyle folded it up and put it in his pocket. Beyond a slight, unaccustomed pallor of the red cheeks, he showed no sign of emotion. Before the arrival of the postman, he had been cleaning his master's bicycle, which stood against the table. To this he returned. Kneeling down in some fresh straw, he used his dusters slowly and patiently, rubbing, then stopping to examine the result, and then rubbing again. When the machine was polished to his satisfaction, he wheeled it carefully into the stable, where it occupied a stall next to that of the cob. As he passed back again, the animal leisurely turned its head and gazed at Froyle with its large, liquid eyes. He slapped the immense flank. Content, the animal returned to its feed, and the weighted chain ran down with a rattle. The fortnightly meeting of the Slate Club was to take place at eight o'clock that evening. Froyle had employed part of the afternoon in making ready his books for the event, to him always so solemn and ceremonious, and the affairs of the club were now prominent in his mind. He was sorry that it would be impossible for him to attend the meeting. Fortunately, all the usual preliminaries were complete. He took a piece of note-paper from a little hanging cupboard, and, sprawling across the table, began to write under the lantern. The pencil seemed a tiny toy in his thick, roughened fingers. To Mr. Andrew McCall, Chairman Queen's Arms Slate Club, Dear Sir, I regret to inform you that I shall not be at the meeting tonight. You will find the books in order. Here he stopped, biting the end of the pencil in thought. He put down the pencil and stepped hastily out of the stable, across the yard and into the hotel. In the large room, the room where cyclists sometimes took tea and cold meat during the summer season, the long deal table and the double line of oaken chairs stood ready for the meeting. A fire burnt warmly in the big grate, and the hanging lamp had been lighted. On the wall was a large card containing the rules of the club, which had been written out in a fair hand by the schoolmaster. It was to this card that Froyle went. Passing his thumb down the card, he paused at Rule 7. Each member shall, on the death of another member, pay one shilling for benefit of widow or nominee of deceased, same to be paid within one month after notice given. Or nominee, nominee, he murmured reflectively, staring at the card. He mechanically noticed what he had noticed often before with disdain, that the chairman had signed the rules without the use of capitals. He went back to the dusk of the coach-house to finish his letter, still murmuring the word nominee, of whose meaning he was not quite sure. I request that the money due to me from the Slate Club on my death shall be paid to my nominee, Miss Susan Trimmer, now staying with her aunt, Mrs. Penrose, at Bursley. Yours respectfully, William Froyle. After further consideration, he added, P.S. My annual salary of sixpence per member would be due at the end of December. If so be the members would pay that, or part of it, should they consider the same due, to Susan Trimmer as well, I should be thankful. Yours, Resp. W.F. He put the letter in an envelope, and, taking it to the large room, laid it carefully at the end of the table, opposite the chairman's seat. Once more he returned to the coach-house. From the hanging cupboard he now produced a piece of rope. Standing on the table he could just reach 
by leaning forward a hook in the ceiling that was sometimes used for the slinging of bicycles. With difficulty he made the rope fast to the hook. Putting a noose on the other end, he tightened it round his neck. He looked up at the ceiling and down at the floor in order to judge whether the rope was short enough. Goodbye, Susan and everyone, he whispered, and then stepped off the table. The tense rope swung him by his neck halfway across the coach house. He swung twice to and fro, but as he passed under the hook for the fifth time, his toes touched the floor. The rope had stretched. In another second he was standing firm on the floor, purple and panting, but ignominiously alive. "'Good evening to you, Mr. Froyle. Be you committing suicide?' The tones were drawling uncertain, mildly astonished. He turned round hastily, his hands busy with the rope, and saw in the doorway the figure of daft Jimmy the Moorthorne idiot. He hesitated before speaking, but he was not confused. No one could have been confused before daft Jimmy. Neither man nor woman in the village considered his presence more than that of a cat. "'Yes, I am,' he said. The middle-aged idiot regarded him with a vague, interested smile, and came into the coach-house. "'You'n gotten the rope too long, Mr. Foyle. Let me help you.' Froyle calmly assented. He stood on the table, and the two rearranged the noose and made it secure. As they did so, the idiot gossiped, "'I was going to Bursley tonight to buy me a pair of boots, and when I was at top of the hill, I remembered as I'd forgotten the measure of my feet.' So I ran back again for it. Then I saw the light in here, and I stepped up to bid ye good evening. Someone had told him the ancient story of the fool and his boots, and with the pride of an idiot in his idiocy, he had determined that it should be related of himself. Froyle was silent. The idiot laughed with a dry cackle. Now you go, said Froyle, when the rope was fixed. Let me see you do it. The idiot pleaded with pathetic eyes. No, out you get. Protesting, the idiot went forth, and his irregular clumsy footsteps sounded on the pebble-paved yard. When the noise of them ceased in the soft roadway, Froyle jumped off the table again. Gradually his body, like a stopping pendulum, came to rest under the hook, and hung twitching with strange disconnected movements. The horse in the stable, hearing unaccustomed noises, rattled his chain and stamped about in the straw of his box. Furtive steps came down the yard again, and daft Jimmy peeped into the coach-house. "'He done it! He done it!' the idiot cried gleefully. "'Damned if he hasna!' He slapped his leg and almost danced. The body still twitched occasionally. "'He done it!' "'Done what, daft Jimmy? You're making a fine noise there. Done what?' The idiot ran out of the stable. At the side entrance to the hotel stood the barmaid, the outline of her fine figure distinct against the light from within. The idiot continued to laugh. "'Done what?' the girl repeated, calling out across the dark yard in clear, pleasant tones of amused inquiry. "'Done what?' "'What's that to you, Miss Tucker?' "'Now, none of your sauce, daft Jimmy. Is Willie Froyle in there?' The idiot roared with laughter. "'Yes, he is, miss.' "'Well, tell him his master wants him. I don't want to cross this mucky, messy yard.' "'Yes, miss.' The girl closed the door. 
The idiot went into the coach-house, and, slapping William's body in a friendly way, so that it trembled on the rope, he spluttered out between his laughs, "'Master wants she, Mr. Froyle!' Then he walked out into the village street, and stood looking up the muddy road, still laughing quietly. It was quite dark, but the moon aloft in the clear sky showed the highway with its shining ruts leading in a straight line over the hill to Bursley. "'Them shoes!' the idiot ejaculated suddenly. "'Well, I'll be an idiot, and that's true. "'They can take the measure from my feet, "'and I never thought on it till this minute.' Laughing again, he set off at a run up the hill. End of chapter 8「After a honeymoon of five weeks in the shining cities of the Mediterranean and in Paris, they re-entered the British Empire by the august portals of the Chatham and Dover Railway. They stood impatiently waiting part of a well-dressed, querulous crowd, while a few officials performed their daily task of improvising a custom-house for registered luggage on a narrow platform of Victoria Station. John, Mr. Norris's man, who had met them, attended behind. Suddenly, with a characteristic movement, the husband lifted his head, and then looked down at his wife. I say, May. Well? She knew that he was about to propose some swift alteration of their plans, but she smiled upwards out of her furs at his grave face, and the tone of her voice granted all requests in advance. I think I'd better go to the office, he said. Now? She smiled again, inviting him to do exactly what he chose. She was already familiar with his restiveness under enforced delays and inaction and his unfortunate capacity for being actively bored by trifles which did not interest him aroused in her a sort of maternal sympathy. Yes, he answered, I can be there and back in an hour or less. You titivate yourself and we'll dine at the Savoy, or anywhere you please. We'll keep the ball rolling tonight. Yes, he repeated as if to convince himself that he was not a deserter. I really must call in at the office. You and John can see to the luggage, can't you? Of course, she replied with calm good nature and also with perfect self-confidence, but give me the keys of the trunks and don't be late, Ted. Oh, I shan't be late, he said. Their fingers touched as she took the keys. He went away enraptured anew by her delightful acquiescences, her unique smile, her common sense, her mature charm, and the astonishing elegance of her person. The honeymoon was over, and with what finished discretion, combining the innocent girl with the woman of the world, she had lived through the honeymoon. Another life, more delicious, was commencing. What a wife, he thought triumphantly, she does understand a man, and fancy leaving an ordinary bride to look after luggage. Nevertheless, once in his offices at Winchester House, he managed to forget her and to forget time for nearly an hour and a half. When at last he came to himself from the enchantment of affairs, he jumped into a hansom and told the driver to drive fast to Knightsbridge. He was ardent to see her again. In the dark seclusion of the cab he speculated upon her toilette, the colour of her shoes. 
He thought of the last five weeks, of the next five years, dwelling on their mutual love and esteem, their health, their self-knowledge and experience and cheerfulness, her sense and grace, his talent for getting money first and keeping it afterwards. He foresaw nothing but happiness for them. Children? Mm, possibly. At Piccadilly Circus it began to rain, cold, heavy March rain. "'Window down, sir?' asked the voice of the cabman. "'Yes,' he ordered sardonically, "'better be suffocated than drowned.' "'You're right, sir,' said the voice. Soon, through the streaming glass, which made every gas-jet into a shooting pillar of flame, Norris discerned vaguely the vast bulk of Hyde Park mansions. "'Good,' he muttered. And at that very moment he was shot through the window into the thin, light-reflecting mire of the street. Enormous and strange beasts menaced him with pitiless hooves. Millions of people crowded about him. In response to a question that seemed to float slowly towards him, he tried to give his address. He realised by a considerable feat of intellect that the horse must have fallen down. And then, with a dim notion that nothing mattered, he went to sleep. Part 2 In the boudoir of the magnificent flat on the first floor, shielded from the noise and the inclemency of the world by four silk-hung walls and a double window, and surrounded by all the multitudinous and costly luxury that a stockbroker with brains and taste can obtain for the wife of his love, May was leisurely finishing her toilette, and every detail in the long, elaborate process was accomplished with a passionate intention to bewitch the man at Winchester House. These two had first met seven years before, when May, the daughter of a successful wholesale draper at Hanbridge in the Five Towns district of Staffordshire, was aged twenty-two. Mr. Scarrett went to Manchester each Tuesday to buy, and about once a month he took May with him. One day, when they were lunching at the Exchange restaurant, a young man came up whom her father introduced as Mr. Edward Norris, his stockbroker. Mr. Norris, whose years were thirty, glanced keenly at May and accepted Mr. Scarrett's invitation to join them. Ever afterwards May vividly remembered the wonderful sensation, joyous yet disconcerting, which she then experienced. The sensation of having captivated her father's handsome and correct stockbroker. The three talked horses with a certain freedom, and since May was accustomed to drive the Scarrett dog-cart, so famous in the five towns, she could bring her due share to the conversation. The meal over, Mr. Norris discussed business matters with his client, and then sedately departed, but not without the obviously sincere expression of a desire to meet Miss Scarrett again. The wholesale draper praised Edward's financial qualities behind his back, and wondered that a man of such aptitude should remain in Manchester while London existed. As for May, she decided that she would have a new frock before she came to Manchester in the following month. She had a new frock, but not of the colour intended. By the following month her father was enclosed in a coffin, and it happened to his estate, as to the estates of many successful men who employ stockbrokers, that the liabilities far more than covered the assets. May and her mother were left without a penny. The mother did the right thing and died. It was best. May went direct to Brunt's, the largest draper in the five towns, and asked for a place under Madame in the dressmaking department. 
Brunt's daughter, who was about to be married, gave her the place instantly. Three years later, when Madame returned to Paris, May stepped into the Frenchwoman's shoes. On Sundays, and on Thursday afternoons, and sometimes, but not too often, at the theatre, May was the finest walking advertisement that Brunt's ever had. Old Brunt would have proposed to her, it was rumoured, had he not been scared by her elegance. Sundry sons of prosperous manufacturers, unabashed by this elegance, did, in fact, secretly propose, but with what result was known only to themselves. Later, as May waxed in importance at Brunt's, she was sent to Manchester to buy. She lunched at the Exchange Restaurant. The world and Manchester are very small. The first man she set eyes on was Edward Norris. Another week, Norris said to her with a thrill, and he would have been gone for ever to London. Chance is not to be flouted. The sequel was inevitable. They loved, and all the select private bars in Hambridge tinkled to the news that May Scarrett had been and hooked a stockbroker. When the toilette was done and the maid gone, she wound a thin black scarf round her olive neck and shoulders, and sat down negligently on a Chippendale settee in the attitude of a portrait by Boldini. Her little feet were tucked up sideways on the settee. The perforated lace ends of the scarf fell over her low corsage to the level of the seat. And she waited, still the bride. He was late, but she knew he would be late. Sure in the conviction that he was a strong man, a man of imagination and of deeds, she could easily excuse this failing in him, as she did that other habit of impulsive action in trifles. Nay, more, she found keen pleasure in excusing it. Dear thing, she reflected, he forgets so. Therefore she waited, content in enjoying the image in the glass of her dark face, her small, plump person and her Paris gown, that dream. She thought with assuaged grief of her father's tragedy. She would have liked him to see her now, the jewel in the case, her father and she had understood each other. All around and above and below she felt, without hearing it, the activity of the opulent, complex life of the mansions. Her mind dwelt with satisfaction on long, carpeted corridors noiselessly paraded by flunkies, mahogany lifts continually ascending and descending like the angels of the ladder, the great entrance hall with its fire always burning and its doors always swinging, the salle à manger sewn with rose-shaded candles, and all the splendid privacies rising stage upon stage to the attics, where the flunkies philosophised together. She confessed the beauty and distinction achieved by this extravagant organisation for gratifying earthly desires. Often, in the pinching days of her servitude, she had murmured against the injustice of things, and had called wealth a crime while poverty starved. But now she perceived that society was what it was inevitably, and could not be altered. She accepted it in profound peace of mind, gaily fraternal towards the fortunate, compassionate towards those in adversity. In the next flat someone began to play very brilliantly a Hungarian rhapsody of Liszt's, and even the faint sound of that riotous torrent of melody so arrogantly gorgeous intoxicated her soul. She shivered under the sudden vision of the splendid joy of being alive, and how she envied the player, 
French she had learnt from Madame, but she had no skill on the piano. It was her one regret. She touched the bell. "'Has your master come in yet?' she inquired of the maid. "'No, Madame, not yet.' She knew he had not come in, but she could not resist the impulse to ask. Ten minutes later, when the piano had ceased, she jumped up and, creeping to the front door of the flat, gazed foolishly across the corridor at the grill of the lift. She heard the lift in travail. It appeared and passed out of sight above. No, he had not come. Glancing aside, she saw the tall, slender figure of a girl in a green tea-gown. A mere girl. It was the player of the Hungarian Rhapsody. And this girl, too, she thought, was expectant and disappointed. They shut their doors simultaneously, she and May, who also had her girlish moments. Then the Rhapsody recommenced. "'Oh, madame!' screamed the maid, almost tumbling into the boudoir. "'What is it?' May demanded with false calm. The maid lifted the corner of her black apron to her eyes, as though she had been a stage soubrette in trouble. "'The master, madame, he's fell out of his cab, just in front of the mansions, and they're bringing him in. Such blood I never did see!' The maid finished with hysterics. Part three. "'And them just off their honeymoon!' The inconsolable tones of the lady's maid came from the kitchen to the open door of the bedroom, where May was giving instructions to the elderly cook. "'Send that girl out of the flat this moment,' May said. "'Yes, ma'am. "'Make the beef tea in case it's wanted, and let me have some more warm water. "'There's John and the doctor.' She started at a knock. "'No, it's only the postman, ma'am.' Some letters danced on the hall floor and on her nerves. "'Oh, dear!' May whispered. "'I thought it was the doctor at last.' "'John's bound to be back with one in a minute, ma'am. Do bear up,' urged the cook, hurrying to the kitchen. She could have destroyed the woman for those last words. With the proud certainty of being equal to the dreadful crisis, she turned abruptly into the bedroom, where her husband lay insensible on one of the new beds. Assisted by the policeman and the cook, she had done everything that could be done, cut away the coats and the waistcoat, removed the boots, straightened the limbs, washed the face and neck, especially the neck, which had to be sponged continually, and scattered messengers, including John, over the vicinity in search of medical aid. And now the policeman had gone, the general emotion on the staircase had subsided, the front door of the flat was shut. The great ocean of life of the mansions had closed smoothly upon her little episode. She was alone with the shattered organism. She bent fondly over the bed, and her Paris frock and the black scarf which she had not removed touched its ruinous burden. Her right hand directed the sponge with ineffable tenderness, and then the long thin fingers tightened to a frenzied clutch to squeeze it over the basin. The whole of her being was absorbed in a deep passion of pity and an intolerable hunger for the doctor. Through the wall came once more the faint sound of the Hungarian rhapsody, astonishingly rapid and brilliant. She set her teeth to endure its unconscious message of the vast indifference of life to death. The organism stirred, and May watched the deathly face for a sign. The eyes opened and stared at her in agonised bewilderment. The lips tried to speak and failed. 
"'It's all right, darling,' she said softly. "'You're in your own bed. The doctor will be here directly. Drink this.' She gave him some brandy and water, and they looked at each other. He was no longer Edward Norris, the finely regulated intelligence, the masterful volition, the conqueror of the world and of a woman, but merely the embodiment of a frightened, despairing, flickering, hysterical will to live, which glanced in terror at the corners of the room as though it saw fate there. And beneath her intense solicitude was the instinctive feeling, which hurt her but which she could not dismiss, of her measureless, dominating superiority. With what glad relief would she have changed places with him? "'I'm dying, May,' he murmured at length with a sigh. "'Why doesn't the doctor come?' "'He is coming,' she replied soothingly. "'You'll be better soon.' But his effort in speaking obliged her to use the sponge again, and he saw it and drew another sigh, more mortal than the first. "'Oh, I'm dying,' he repeated. "'Not you, Ted.' and her smile cost her an awful pang. I am, I know it. This time he spoke with sad resignation. You must face it, and listen. What, dear? A physical sensation of sickness came over her. She could not disguise from herself the fact that he was dying. The warped and pallid face, the panic-struck eyes, the sweat, the wound in the neck, the damp hands nervously pulling at the hem of the sheet, these indications were not to be gainsaid. The truth was too horrible to grasp. She wanted to put it away from her. This calamity cannot happen to me, she thought urgently, and all the while she knew that it was happening to her. He collected the feeble remnant of his powers by an immense effort and began to speak, slowly and fragmentarily, and with such weakness that she could only catch his words by putting her ear to his mouth. The restless hands dropped the sheet and took the end of the black scarf. "'You'll be comfortable for money,' he said. "'Will made, it's not that, it's, I must tell you, it's—' "'Yes,' she encouraged him, "'tell me, I can hear. "'It's about your father. I didn't treat him quite right once.' week after I first met you, May. No, not quite right. He was holding Hull and Barnsley shares, you know, railway, great gambling stock then, Hull and Barn Barnsley, holding them on cover for the rise. They dropped too much, dropped to twenty-three. He couldn't hold any longer. Wired to me to sell and cut the loss. Understand? Yes, she said, trembling. I quite understand. Well, I wired back, sold at twenty-three, but some mistake, shares not sold, Clark's mistake, Clark didn't sell. Next day, rise began, I didn't wire him shares not sold, somehow I couldn't, put it off, rise went on, I took over shares myself, you see, myself, made nearly five thousand clear. I wanted money then, I think I would have told him, perhaps later, made it right, but he died, sudden. I wasn't going to let his creditors have that five thou. No, he'd meant to sell, and look here, May, if those shares had dropped lower, instead of rising, I should have had to stand the racket. With your father, for my clerk's mistake. See, he'd meant to sell. Hard lines on him, but he'd meant to sell. He'd meant... Don't say any more, dear. Must explain this, May. Why didn't I give the money to you when he was dead? 
because I knew you'd only give it to creditors. I knew you. That's straight. I've told you now. He lost consciousness again, but for an instant May did not notice it. She was crying, and her tears fell on his face. Then came a doctor, a little dark man, who explained with calm politeness that he had been out when the messenger first arrived. He took off his coat, hung it up, opened his bag, and proceeded to a minute examination of the patient. His movements were so methodical, and he gave orders to May in a tone so quiet, casual, and ordinary, that she almost lost her sense of the reality of the scene. "'Yes, yes,' he said from time to time, as if to himself. Nothing else, not a single enlightening word to May. "'I'm dying,' moaned Edward, opening his eyes. The doctor glanced round at May and winked. That wink, deliberate and humorous, was like an electric shock to her. She could actually feel her heart leap in her breast. If she had not been afraid of the doctor, she would have fainted. "'You all think you're dying,' the doctor remarked in a low, amused tone to the ceiling as he wiped a pair of scissors, "'when you've been knocked silly, especially if there's a lot of blood about.' The door opened. "'Here's John, ma'am,' said the cook, "'with two more doctors. What am I to do?' May involuntarily turned towards the door. "'Don't you go, Mrs. Norris,' the little dark man commanded. "'I want you.' Then he carelessly scrutinised the elderly servant. "'Tell them they're too late,' he said. "'It's generally like that when there's an accident,' he continued after the housekeeper had gone. First you can't get a doctor anywhere, and then in half an hour or so we come in crowds. "'I've known seven doctors turn up one after another. "'But in that affair the man happened to have been killed outright.' He smiled grimly. In a little while he was snapping his bag. "'I'll come in the morning, of course,' he said, as he wrote on a piece of paper. "'Have this made up, and give it him in the night, if he is wakeful. Keep him warm. "'You might put a couple of hot water bags, one on either side of him. "'You've got beef tea made, you say? That's right. Let him have as much as he wants. "'Mr. Norris, you'll sleep like a top.' "'But, Doctor,' May inquired the next morning in the hall, after Edward had smiled at a joke, and been informed that he must run down to Bournemouth in a week. "'Have we nothing to fear?' "'I think not,' was the measured answer. "'These affairs nearly always seem much worse than they are. "'Of course the immediate upset is tremendous, "'the disorganisation and all that sort of thing. "'But nature's pretty wonderful. "'You'll find your husband will soon get over it. "'I should say he had a good constitution. "'And there will be no permanent effects?' "'Yes,' said the doctor, with genial cynicism, "'there'll be one permanent effect. "'Nobody will ever persuade him to ride in a hansom again. "'If he can't find a four-wheeler, he'll walk in future.' She returned to the bedroom. The man on the bed was Edward Norris once more, in control of himself, risen out of his humiliation. A feeling of thankfulness overwhelmed her for a moment, and she sat down. "'Well, May,' he murmured. "'Well, dear,' They both realised that what they had been through was a common daily street accident. The smile of each was self-conscious, apprehensive, insincere. "'Quite a concert going on next door,' he said, with an affectation of lightness. It was the Hungarian Rhapsody, impetuous and brilliant as ever. How she hated it now, this symbol of the hurried, unheeding, relentless, hollow gaiety of the world. 
yet she longed for the magic fingers of the player that she too might smother grief in such glittering veils part four the marriage which had begun so dramatically fell into placid routine edward fulfilled the prophecy of the doctor in a week they were able to go to bournemouth for a few days and in less than a fortnight he was at the office the strong man again confident and ambitious after days devoted to finance he came home in the evenings high-spirited and determined to enjoy himself his voice was firm and his eye steady when he spoke to his wife there was no trace of self-consciousness in his demeanour she admired the masculinity of the brain that could forget by an effort of will she felt that he trusted her to forget also that he relied on her common sense her characteristic sagacity to extinguish forever the memory of an awkward incident he loved her he was intensely proud of her he treated her with every sort of generosity and in return he expected her to behave like a man she loved him she esteemed him as a wife should she made a profession of wifehood he gave his days to finance and his nights to diversion but her vocation was always with her she was never off duty she aimed to please him to the uttermost in everything to be in all respects the ideal helpmate of a husband who was at once strenuous fastidious and wealthy elegance and suavity were a religion with her she was the delight of the eye and of the ear the soother of groans the refuge of distress the uplifter of the heart she made new acquaintances for him and cemented old friendships her manner towards his old friends enchanted him but when they were gone she had a way of making him feel that she was only his she thought that she was succeeding in her aim she thought that all these sweet endless labours of traffic with dressmakers milliners coiffeurs maids cooks and furnishers of paying and receiving calls of delicious surprise journeys to the city to bring home the breadwinner of giving and accepting dinners of sitting alert and appreciative in theatres and music halls of supping in golden restaurants of being serious cautionary submissive and subductive of smiles laughter and kisses and of continuous sympathetic responsiveness she thought that all these labours had attained their object edward's complete serenity and satisfaction she imagined that love and duty had combined successfully to deceive him on one solitary point she was sure that he was deceived but she was wrong one evening they were at the theatre alone together it was a musical comedy and they had a large stage box may sat a little behind after having been darkened for a scenic conjuring trick the stage was very suddenly thrown into brilliant light edward turned with equal suddenness to share his appreciation of the effect with his wife and the light and his eye caught her unawares she smiled instantly but too late he had seen the expression of her features for a second she felt as if the whole fabric which she had been building for the last six months had crumbled but this disturbing idea passed as she recovered herself let's go home eh he said at the end of the first act yes she agreed it would be nice to be in early wouldn't it in the brougham they exchanged the amiable banalities of people who are thoroughly intimate when they reached the flat she poured out his whisky and potass 
and sat on the arm of his particular armchair while he sipped it. Then she whispered that she was going to bed. "'Wait a bit,' he said. "'I want to talk to you seriously.' "'Dear thing,' she murmured, stroking his coat. She had not the slightest notion of his purpose. "'You've tried your best, May,' he said bluntly, "'but you've failed. I've suspected it for a long time.' She flushed and retired to a sofa away from the orange electric lamp. "'What do you mean, Edward?' she asked. "'You know very well what I mean, my dear,' he replied. "'What I told you, that night. You've tried to forget it. You've tried to look at me as though you had forgotten it. But you can't do it. It's on your mind. I've noticed it again and again.' I noticed it at the theatre tonight, so I said to myself, I'll have it out with her, and I'm having it out. My dear Ted, I assure you— No, you don't, he stopped her. I wish you did. Now you must just listen. I know exactly what sort of an idiot I was that night, as well as you do. But I couldn't help it. I was a fool to tell you. Still, I thought I was dying. I simply had a babbling fit. People are like that. You thought I was dying too, didn't you? "'Yes,' she said quietly, "'for a minute or two. "'Ah, it was that minute or two that did it. "'Well, I let it out, the rotten little secret. "'I admit it wasn't on the square, that bit of business, "'but on the other hand it wasn't anything really bad, "'like cruelty to animals or ruining a girl. "'Of course the chap was your father, but, but look here, May, "'you ought to be able to see that I was exactly the same man "'after I told you as I was before. "'You ought to be able to see that.' My character wasn't wrecked because I happened to split on myself like an ass about the affair. Mind you, I don't blame you. You can't help your feelings. But do you suppose there's a single man on this blessed earth without a secret? I'm not going to grovel before gods or men. I'm not going to pretend I'm so frightfully sorry. I'm sorry in a way, but can't you see? Don't say any more, Ted, she begged him, fingering her sash. I know all that. I know it all, and everything else you can say. Oh, my darling boy, do you think I would look down on you ever so little because of what you told me? Who am I? I wouldn't care tuppence, even if— But it's between us all the same, he broke in. You can't get over it. Get over it, she repeated lamely. Can you? Have you? He pinned her to a direct answer. She did not flinch. No, she said. I thought you would have done, he remarked half to himself. I thought you would. I thought you were enough a woman of the world for that, May. It isn't as if the confounded thing had made any real difference to your father. The old man died, and— Ted, she exclaimed, I shall have to tell you after all. It's killed him. What killed him? He died of gastritis. He was ill with gastritis, but he died of suicide. It's easy for a gastritis patient to commit suicide, and father did. Why? Oh, ruin, despair. He'd been in difficulties for a long time. He said that selling those shares just one day too soon was the end of it. When he saw them going up day after day, it got on his mind. He said he knew he would never, never have any luck. And then... You kept it quiet? He was walking about the room. Yes, that was pretty easy. And did your mother know? He turned and looked at her. Yes, mother knew. It finished her. Oh, Ted, she burst out, if you'd only telegraphed to him the next morning that the shares weren't sold, things might have been quite different. You mean I killed your father and your mother? No, I don't, she cried passionately. I tell you I don't. You didn't know. 
but I think of it all sometimes, and that's why, that's why, she sat down again. By God, May, he swore, I'm frightfully sorry. I never meant to tell you, she said, composing herself, but there, things slip out. Good night. She was gone, but in passing him she had timidly caressed his shoulder. It's all up, he said to himself. This will always be between us. No one could expect her to forget it. Part 5 Gradually her characteristic habits deserted her. She seemed to lose energy and a part of her interest in those things which had occupied her most. She changed her dress less frequently, ignoring dressmakers, and she showed no longer the ravishing elegance of the bride. She often lay in bed till noon, she who had always entered the dining-room at nine o'clock precisely, to dispense his coffee and listen to his remarks on the contents of the newspaper. She said, as you please, to the cook, and the meals began to lose their piquancy. She paid no calls, but some of her women friends continued nevertheless to visit her. Lastly, she took to sewing. The little dark doctor who had become an acquaintance smiled at her and told her to do no more than she felt disposed to do. She reclined on sofas in shaded rooms and appeared to meditate. She was not depressed, but thoughtful. It was as though she had much to settle in her own mind. At intervals the faint sound of the Hungarian rhapsody mingled with her reveries. As for Edward, his behaviour was immaculate. During the day he made money furiously. In the evening he sat with his wife. They did not talk much, and he never questioned her. She developed a certain curious whimsicality now and then, but for him she could do no wrong. The past was not mentioned. They both looked apprehensively towards the future, towards a crisis which they knew was inexorably approaching. They were afraid, while pretending to have no fear. And, one afternoon, precipitately, surprisingly, the crisis came. "'You are the father of a son, a very noisy son,' said the doctor, coming into the drawing-room, where Edward had sat in torture for three hours. "'And May? Oh, never fear, she's doing excellently.' "'Can I go and see her?' he asked, like a humble petitioner. "'Well, yes,' said the doctor, "'for one minute, not more.' So he went into the bedroom as into a church, feeling a fool. The nurse, miraculously white and starched, stood like a sentinel at the foot of the bed of mystery. "'All serene, May?' he questioned. If he had attempted to say another word, he would have cried. The pale mother nodded with a fatigued smile, and, by a scarcely perceptible gesture, drew his attention to a bundle. From the next flat came a faint, familiar sound, insolently joyous. Yes, he thought, but if they'd both been lying dead here, that tune would have been the same. Two months later, he left the office early, telling his secretary that he had a headache. It was a mere fibbing excuse. He suffered from sudden fits of anxiety about his wife and child. When he reached the flat, he found no one at home but the cook. Where's your mistress? he demanded. She's out in the park with baby and nurse, sir. "'But it's going to rain,' he cried angrily. "'It is raining. They'll get wet through.' He rushed into the corridor and met the procession, May, the perambulator, and the nursemaid. 
"'Only fancy, Ted,' May exclaimed. "'The perambulator will go into the lift after all. Aren't you glad?' "'Yes,' he said. "'But you're wet, surely?' "'Not a drop. We just got in in time.' "'Sure? Quite.' The tableau of May, elegant as ever, but her eyes brighter and her body more leniently curved, of the hooded perambulator, and of the fluffy white nursemaid behind, it was too much for him. Touching clumsily the apron of the perambulator, the stockbroker turned into his doorway. Just then the girl from the next flat came out into the corridor, dressed for social rites of the afternoon. The perambulator was her excuse for stopping. "'What a pretty boy!' she exclaimed in ecstasy, trying to squeeze her picture hat under the hood of the perambulator. "'Do you really think so?' said the mother, enchanted. Oh, "'Of course, the darling, how I envy you!' May wanted to reciprocate this politeness. "'I can't tell you,' she said, "'how I envy you your piano playing. There's one piece.' "'Envy me? Why, it's only a pianola we've got.' "'Isn't he the picture of his granddad? said May to Edward, when they bent over the cot that night before retiring. And as she said it, there was such candour in her voice, such content in her smiling and courageous eyes, that Edward could not fail to comprehend her message to him. Down in some very secret part of his soul he felt for the first time the real force of the great explanatory truth that one generation succeeds another. End of chapter 9「Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. » And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.